The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's reading is Romans 12, 9-21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Man, great job, Ruthie. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Stacy Croft. If I haven't met you, I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church on Music Row. And I uh, hope you come to the picnic right after it, because I'd love to get to know you better. And also, if you want to grab uh, coffee or lunch um, anytime soon, please sign that black pad grab me, email me. Uh, I'd love to get to know you and your story better and uh, also uh, answer anything about the church. Um, So we've lived in Nashville for, gosh, about, oh, 14 plus years, 14 and some change. And we lived in a couple different houses here. Uh, We lived in Creve Hall for a while, which is another neighborhood, by the way, that's uh, part of our our church as well, Creve Hall and Woodbine. And um, uh, many of you folks live over there as well. We have a connect group there. It's fun. Um, but we moved over from there uh, close to off Harding, and we live across from uh, some tennis courts. We've been there for about seven years or so. And some time ago, six, maybe even seven years ago, uh, I remember coming home from work late, or um, and it was like 10 or so on a Wednesday night. Typically, uh, Wednesdays when we had uh, big groups, and uh, the, I'd get home late on Wednesdays, and I noticed the tennis court's lights were on. And they weren't just left on, there were people on the court playing that late, which was awesome. But when I noticed, um, not just that first time, but I started watching more and more over the uh, weeks, months, even years, every Wednesday night. And um, the, the lights would come on, and it's this group of, of guys they're about, they're, they're not in their 20s, 30s, 40s. These guys, I think, are in their uh, late 50s, 60s. And I've noticed uh, they'll play, and because I've creeped on them a little bit. I've played over there uh, with some people at one night, and, and I, I think they start around like 8. And then they, I mean, they end well past, like 11, sometimes midnight. Uh, I'll still see the lights on and hear cars driving away. And I've often wondered, like, what they'll do is they'll play a little bit, and then they go sit 
uh, on a couple coolers that they brought, which are, I'm sure, full of really good things, and uh, have some conversation in between matches, and they play doubles and such like that. But man, I have admired these guys forever. And I remember watching them um, when I played uh, next to the courts next to them. I'm just wondering, what is their, what, what do they talk about? What are they doing? What, how long have they been doing this? I mean, pro- maybe a lot longer than since we've lived there. Uh, and I thought, man, I want that in my life. Like, th- that's what I want. I want, a, I, want a, I want a group like that that's consistent. I mean, think about this. Whatever it costs them, time, physical pain, <laughs> uh, you know, sleep, uh, they do not give up meeting together in a small group to process life together. And it's probably not just the way they hit the tennis ball. It's those in-betweens. It's sitting on the cooler. It's the discussions they have that really help process life. And, and you know what? Like, we're, we're walking through our vision um, in our church, worship, connect, serve. Like, what are, the, what are the practical avenues in which we worship, connect, serve? And those words are not necessarily like rocket science words. They're not. Um, plenty of other churches use those words. But what they mean for us, particularly in our our church and what we ask is, okay, are you worshiping, connecting, and serving? Meaning, and we've talked for the last two weeks on, is how the vital importance of public worship, church, and private worship, the means of grace, that is, you know, scripture, prayer, those kind of things. But now we're moving to, the, to we're talking about connecting. And what I think about this group of guys who play tennis is just like any group that we long to be a part of, a small group that helps us process the world. I mean, this is not just a church idea. We talk about small groups, and we talk about being in them, and we create avenues for people to be in those, and some of you are in small groups that are not necessarily a part of, you know, they don't have like the, the, the Christ Prez Music Row kind of uh, stamp on them or something. We actually long for more of that. Uh, smaller groups that even, that come from the avenues we have, but, but what are those? Those are groups that we help process life. Everybody has those. No matter what, whether it's in the doors of a church or not, we all want to be a part of a group that helps us process and understand life together. We get in those. So, so even here on this Sunday morning when we, you know, we sing together, we recite confessions, we, we, and I love what Bing Davis said, we, we speak together, we, we take the, the flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus together, but we leave here and we get into groups that help us process what we've done here. Look, I'm an only child. I'm, a, I'm one of those people. Uh, yes, I probably have some characteristics of that. Uh, if you're an only child here, I am a selfish, self-absorbed only child, but here's the thing, Right? The church is not about only children. There are no only children in the church. And if we live that way, we, we're, we're, and oftentimes we can, we can leave these doors and it, this is the only public scene. Because we have this privatized space of where we meet with God. But where we really process, where we make sense of the gospel is when we're in smaller groups together. Make sense of it together. In spite of what it costs, the consistency, the physicality, the time, the suffering, isn't that what it is? And that's what this passage is. This is from Romans chapter 12. Uh, chapter 12. And for, like, if you know Romans or if you've ever heard of the book of Romans, it's a deep, dense theological book. Paul, who wrote it wrote to the church at Rome, wrote 11 chapters on some of the deepest, most beautiful, rich theology ever. It'd be perfect if you're, if you're asking questions theologically. But what he does in chapter 12 is he, he, he finishes in 11 and he jumps to 12 and he says, now this is how it looks. 
Okay, here's the theology, but how do you practice it? And that's what this, this is this morning. It's deeply practical. How do you really have groups that practice processing the gospel together, the good news of Jesus Christ? Why, and why is that different than other group life together and the need for that? And there are two simple things that Paul brings out in this passage of practicality. What does it look on the inside of a group, and what does it look like on the outside? What does it look on the inside, and what does it look on the outside? Pretty simple. As he begins uh, in verse 9 and so forth, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit of the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be in constant prayer. You know, much of what is read here, it seems like Paul's drawing from something, like a, an ethic of sorts. And, and if you look, if you have a Bible or maybe a phone that has Scripture in it, it'll have these little notations where you can see a reference, right? And if you see that, you'll see that there are parallels to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, the narrative accounts of Jesus Christ himself giving this elaborate, beautiful sermon on how, what are the marks of Christianity. And this ethic in this, these guidelines were, by this time, the Roman church circulated widely. It looks like something that would have been handed down, almost as if Paul was taking it and providing again for the church of Rome to understand, hey, here's what Jesus himself says about living in love together. And it's easy to look at that and say, okay, showing genuine love. Let love be genuine. That's kind of what you would think, right? Like a, a religious treatise of any sort. You know, just love one another. And it'll all solve things. Like, you know, Carrie Underwood, just love wins. Like, belt it out. You know what I'm saying? Like, that'll solve it. That'll change it. But, but what he means, let love be genuine, is very different from what we might think of just, oh, just love, care for each other. It's less of an affection. It's less of something emotive or feeling. It's more of moving in and practical. Like, think about what he's saying. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful. He's, he's drawing out the fact that, look, love for us can feel just like an emotion. It can be something like waves on a shore that come and go, but what he's saying is why it's slothful is we bank on that rather than moving in genuine love. Genuine love, it's not in pretense, it's not fake, it's, not, it, it's, it's costly, it means something. You know, we live in, uh, and I do this, I don't know how many of you are Amazon Prime members, but it's easy to go on Amazon, and when you're kind of wanting a certain product or something that's really uh, valuable, you've seen in a magazine or maybe, uh, you know, your friends have or something like that, to go on Amazon and try and find that product, whether it be the same product or something similar for a cheaper price, right? Or you can get it like a 12-pack of this for, you know, nothing and prime it. You know, you get it in like two days. And so it's easy for us oftentimes to see instead of, you know, ordering this, you know, it can be just a little shift instead of products, Prado, or, you know what I mean? Like you get kind of, you're willing to pay for this and get this. This is kind of our culture in the way that we can step into uh, what is really valuable to us, what's genuine. See, instead of going all in, instead of paying the full price, we, we, we are, can, can be that way. And we often do that when it comes, and this is what he's pushing at, it's not just loving people, not just being nice, not just tolerating. It's putting on something different that actually costs you the full price. Not 
seeing whether it's going to, uh, how much is, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can care for this person in this way and it not cost me so much. <laughs> Genuine love is deeper. It actually says, instead of, it means this, instead of pretense, instead of the pretending or appearance of pretending to be truthful in our love, and especially in a, in a culture oftentimes um, and you can feel that way of being nice and, and tolerating and, and careful and, and not, you know, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. We can, su- you know, substitute that for genuine love. But what this means is, is actually putting on something. It's not pretending. It's putting on the real thing. Uh, I was playing with my four-year-old son um, this last week, and uh, he is uh, hilarious uh, a, a little um, dude that commands the room, and he said, he'll say to me, he'll say, Dad, come. He'll just do that. And he knows, I mean, he can give full sense. It's not like he, he's a kid. He just is like, come. You know, he, <laughs> that's him. Um, and so I'm like, okay. Uh, so I'll come in there, and we'll play. And oftentimes, uh, as we call in our house, uh, magic time. Our, our boys will get in this space where uh, they are trying on this world, and they're living in this space, and sometimes we get to enter into it. It's really cool. So at this point, you know, Dad, come. We, I go in, and uh, we have kind of this food, like wooden food, you know, like just fun, you know, you pretend cooking. So Cole is wanting me to pretend restaurant with him. And so I sit down, and he's like, you sit here. And, I'm, you know, he's a really good restauranteer. You sit here. I'll, we're going to build a burrito together, you know. It's like my perfect food. Let's do this. So uh, we start building the food. And, and, and here's what's beautiful about it. He, to him, he's not so much just pretending and hoping that I feel like it's, it's real. He's really stepping into that. He's wanting me to enter in and try on what it is it really like to create a meal, to be in this space, to have this. C.S. Lewis put it beautifully when he said this. Listen to what he said about growing up. And not for kids, but for adults, that there are two kinds of pretending. There's the bad kind where pretense is there instead of the real thing. But there's also the good kind where pretense leads up to the real thing. That's why children's games are so important. They're always pretending to be grown-ups, playing soldiers, playing shop, but all the time they are hardening their muscles and sharpening their wits so that the pretense of growing up helps them to grow up in earnest. What genuine means here, what the, the, the essence of it means is that we're not just trying to be, not, we're actually putting on a love that we can't show in and of ourselves. It's putting on a love that has been shown to us. That the practical nature of, of God coming in flesh it wasn't an idea, it wasn't a philosophy, it was a person. It entered in to show and do and be genuine love for us. And what our groups are to show is these small ways. These are the places we process that genuine love. The difference between a group that centers around genuine love and just a, a common interest in this genuine love in Christ is that, that what happens is that's the unique common denominator. It's not just a personality. It's not just a skill set. It's not just a, a fun activity. It's something that helps you process what is, genu- what is this genuine love like? so that you can live in it. See, none of, like I said, none of us are only children. We have to grow together. We have to make sense of this. And it has to begin with that. So how do we know what to abhor? How do we know what to hold fast to if we don't sit and process it together? 
If we don't leave these doors, look, this is vital of importance for us. But every one of us leaves here and has to process what is the good news? What is this genuine love? And how does it look? This is why our groups are so important. Not just, I'm not, again, I'm not just saying one group. I'm saying all of those types of groups that help us try on genuine love. Because it points us to that. It drives us to this. And this is what verse 13 says. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. To see what the needs are of one another inside. To know what that looks like. To, to reflect the genuine love of those together. And to contribute in hospitality. Contribute was a word that said even those of low position. Even those who wouldn't necessarily have the same skill set or have the same means but the same common love, genuine love that's tried on because we have it in Christ helps us process that outside of here because we speak it to one another. We live it together. We lean in and do it together. It's a root word of that. Here's what that looks like. Until we actively lean in, it can, we can remain isolated. I remember... Um, Years ago, as, our, as this church location began, um, as there was a, a young woman who was here, and she would come to church. She was faithful, coming to public worship. She spent time in private worship of, of her Lord, but I would find her often sitting in a pew after service, crying. And many times when I would sit with her and talk to her, it wasn't something about the sermon. It wasn't something about what was going on. It was the fact that she felt isolated and not connected. And at that moment, she and I have talked about this often. There are two ways we often go with that, two. One is to lean out. This is to say, I'm going to lean away from my pain. I'm gonna, there's got to be a, a, a community elsewhere that just is working together perfectly. It's just there's a lot more to it. Or you can lean into the pain and say, instead of leaning away from it, lean into it and say, you know what, I'm going to reach others who are definitely feeling the same isolation and same struggle and same suffering, and I'm going to pull them to me, and we're going to discuss, we're going to try on what genuine love really looks like. And you know what, where this young professionals ministry of our church came from? From that. It was because this woman leaned into that that it started. That's how it all began. It wasn't a ministry. It wasn't a program. It was someone saying, I'm going to lean into the fact, you know what? This is the reality of that. And I'm going to spend life together really working with other people who are willing to say, you know what? It hurts me too. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is, if you've never heard of his name, maybe you have, he was a, a martyr, a guy in prison talking about what is it like to live together with other, other people of Christian, who are Christians. He said this, many of us pursue like a wish fulfillment, an ideal, and we totally miss it because of that. He said, innumerable times Christian community has broken down because it sprung from a wishful dream. But God's grace Listen to that. God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Only fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what should be in God's sight. It's only when we actually lay down this ideal of perfection, when we can actually try on, know that this is the difference. Genuine love means it's not all about us. 
And then what does he say in verse 15? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You want to know a real practice? It's empathy. That's, all, that's what Paul is saying. Can we rejoice and weep together? Can we hold one another with trust in that way? And empathy, look, empathy is not a gift per se. It's a skill. It's something learned. It's something worked at. It's something we have to take on all the time. And what it means is to learn what it's like to be you. That's simple. It's, a, it's, to, it's to learn the other person. And that takes work. Here's why I know that. The greatest person who has ever walked the face of the earth did so to work to sympathize with our weaknesses. That is Jesus. Why did God find it so necessary to come in flesh, to identify with every weakness that we had? Because Jesus came and he worked to say, what is it like to be you, me? So that he could take it on. The most beautiful one who wept and rejoiced. And even at times said, oh, this generation, why does he cry out in many of the Gospels? Why does Jesus do that? It's because he has to take it on. He has to take on the frustration and the difficulty of what does it mean to have life together? And even with a group of disciples that followed him for years and still couldn't grasp it, even in his death, and not until he rose again, because it was in flesh that he had to show that process life together. That's the inside of it. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to feel like. Look, empathy isn't enmeshment. It's not taking on everything and being that person. Even notice Jesus didn't become us and take on your feelings. He was still separate, yet he took it on his shoulders. We own that, but we carry it together. It is something learned. It is something difficult. It is to work at. But it is also something to process and show those outside, what is it like to be inside? What are those, I would be so curious, what do people outside of our church, outside of our circles, think of our church? And here's what's unique about it. There are a lot of people who come visit, and welcome to many of you if you're visiting this morning. Uh, can come and experience, okay, Christ Presbyterian Church Music Row, uh, and what it's like here. But you know where they really get into the meat of what is, what is this church like? is outside of these walls. The reputation of what we carry is, is really less of what I say up here or what we even do in a service. It's actually more of what are we like out there? How do people encounter the smaller groups that are processing this inside to the outside world? What would they say about us? I would be super curious, and some of you have told me. <laughs> some of you shared that with me and been uh, willing to say that. I think, it, I think one of the parts of that that this passage draws out, listen to what he says, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. It turns from inward to out, that if we're really trying on this genuine love, it should, and processing what this should be like, which is not a perfect thing, by the way, if you didn't hear what that was, <laughs> live in harmony with all the struggle and toil within, but then it says, in the sight of all. What are those who see us think this is. If possible, verse 18, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As, if possible. He even knows the struggle within and the struggle without. What do people see? What do the eyes of this world see us as? You know, Nashville is an interesting city and it can be for us. And one of the, 
One of the things I've heard about a city like this, and if we're, we're really try on our city for a minute and who we are. This is who we are. This is not, you know, anything else. This is who we take on. It is. It's a beautiful city. It's a shiny city. Even in our prayers, Aaron prayed, we, we love and are grateful for the flourishing. But as much as is shiny about what's going on here, the loneliness and difficulty is rising just as much. As much as there's a hundred, what is it, the hundred people moving here a day, some sort of stat like that, how many of those people are really connected when they come here? How many of them are connected when they stay here? What is it like to be in this place that's successful and yet so tired that I hear quotes often from you and others who say, I can be entertained, but not known by anybody. I can have these groups that are convened or whatever, but no one really, you know, people here, and this is one big one I've heard often in multiple forms is, Nashville's nice enough, we're a friendly city. It is a very friendly city. Friendly enough to invite you to dinner, but not friendly enough to invite you in. To really know. What, what can we show and process differently to the world out there of what it means to live in this? Sociologists talk about this and how fascinating it is for what religious groups, and particularly I think is distinctive Christianity, that can do and display in our small groups, particularly whether they're connect groups, whether they're men's and women's ministry groups, whether they're something that you've created organically. Does it display an inherited religion or a chosen one? We particularly live in a city that can oftentimes act like we, you know, we live in an inherited religious city, right? This city has a church in a million directions you can choose from. Even if you would say you're not a Christian, so many people, and I, I hope there are so many here, and I hope you invite more and more people to it. This is one reason we, are, as Nashville's making room, we wanted to make room in our services for people to ask the question, what, okay, what is this church thing? There's so many around here. What is this about? But what do they do? They may come to a church, but where do they process what the church does is in those groups. It's outside of that. It's when they leave. And the inherited religion oftentimes for us is like, we just come and go, oh, it's just a part of our culture. You know, just as much as, you know, going to a concert, seeing a Titans game, going to work, being a part of the medical community. I mean, you know, is it just a part of our life? But what sociologists say is when, they're, when a group continually says this is a chosen religion, something that they put themselves into, yes, you may have grown up in it, but this is something that you say, this is mine, that there's a transformation that there's something different about it. It's not transactional. It's transformational. And do our groups show more than transaction? Do they show transformation? And here's how it looks. He doesn't just say this. He says there are two ways that this shows difference in, in the, to everyone outside. He says in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And secondly, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give something to drink. Notice, it's how we handle our suffering, our hurt, our persecution, difficulty, and it's how we display good, those two things. How do we display our hurt and how do we display good to those around us that model this difference? How do we display what is difficult how do we process in our groups what it's like to be hurt? I don't know what kind of groups you're in. <laughs> uh, not necessarily just like religious groups. Maybe you have a group of friends. 
but I know that somewhere you process your hurt. And it could be a group that processes your hurt in a number of ways. And I've heard this from different communities. I was just talking to a friend who's in town who was saying this about the scariness of being a group, that some groups that you, that, that you, go, you may go to, they say, I, I don't want to give any real prayer requests because I don't know what the people in this group will do with my real me. Or is a group there, so say you bring your hurt to a group, is it there to arm you to go back out in the world? Is it to gossip about who hurt you or that other person? See, processing these groups is different. This is why he goes straight to the wrath of God, which is like, whoa, small groups, that sounds a little intense. (laughs) Why does he do that? Because as Christians, what we do is process differently what suffering and pain does. It's not that we don't acknowledge hurt. It's not that we don't try it on. But we're trying it on through someone else in genuine love. If it's true as much as Christ has come in flesh and in form to take on and bring us love, it's also the same that he cares about us in ways that we may not even understand in our hurt and pain. Why did he feel it necessary to come in human form and encounter that hurt and pain and suffering even from his closest disciples who would reject him, who would turn from him, his friends, because he was teaching, he would have to redeem, even in those moments, processing pain and difficulty and hurt. This is what it means to take it up, to not teach each other to be passive aggressive or ignore our hurt, but to teach each other how to do it. This is gonna be very practical for you, I hope. This is what it means to come in that circle and do that, instead of us oftentimes bringing our pain and our hurt and laying it out on the table. And then the next person says something, either makes a joke or makes a story that connects to it to try and go around the room and try and like connect to that some way. What we need to be doing is picking up that person's hurt and everybody around holding it together. That's what it means to, to hold together, to, to genuinely try on love, not in retaliation, but in care. This is what group dynamics are in the gospel. This is what it means to process the good news. Is it really that good in those places and how we teach one another that we can do it well in Jesus? When we don't want to try on genuine love, that we encourage one another in that. And not just that, but show active good, right? The contrary, and this is like totally counter to what you would think, is to not just back away or tolerate your enemy, but go and feed him. Give him something to drink. Heat burning coals on their head. Move towards. I, when I worked uh, in the chaplain's office across the street, one of the things that was actively different, um, was, which was interesting, is up on the wall in there, they had a, a, a thing of the golden rule, which is from Matthew 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And many of you, even if you don't know the Bible well, you may know the golden rule. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? But if you compare that phrase, which is actually not original in Christianity, to other religions, philosophies, ideologies, but if you lay them out, there's one massive difference that Jesus does with that phraseology. It is in the positive versus the negative. If you lay all religions, philosophies, ideologies out, it says, do not do unto others what you would not want them to do to you. What does Jesus do? He turns it into the active 
He says what we wouldn't want him to do. (laughs) Go to your enemy. Care for them. Do good to your enemy. He didn't say your friends. He says your enemy. Why is that so profound? Because that's exactly what this table is. This table is the God of the universe coming to a group of people that were not his friends but his enemies and making us so. That's what this is. This last phrase, heaping burning coals, there's been a lot of ink spilled over this. It's kind of an odd deal. Some people, if you read it or if you read that, you might think, okay, you're just going to put, you're, you're going to do so many good things, you're just going to shame that person <laughs> into, you're just going to, you're going you're gonna to love God because I'm going to do so many good things, you can't do anything with it. I mean, is that what we're supposed to do? Like shame each other with good? I think what Paul is getting at here is something deeper. It comes from Proverbs chapter 25. And some think that it was an Egyptian ritual where they would put a saucer on someone's head and they would put coals in it. And it would be the weight of that that drives them to sin. But I think Paul turns it a little bit to say this, that we cannot, we show good because we cannot carry our own sin. That's what this table is. This table shows us that this community, the way we process genuine love, we try it on and grow up in earnest, the way that we live inside and out is that we have a God who has healed us inside and out who is in flesh genuine love. But why do you have to get up out of your seat, come forward practically, and actually take the bread and the wine? Because you have to, in practice, remind yourself, put on the genuine love that is yours in Christ. And then what do we do? We leave these doors, may go to a picnic, may go somewhere else, but in some way or set or time of with close friends, and hopefully you develop that in a group. And if you aren't in one, you need to be in one. That you process what you just took here out for the rest of the week. That your friends in Christ help you process this meal as a family out there so that we can display what is different about this. Where is the cost Is it us physically? Is it us emotionally? No, it's all on him. And that frees us to live it out in him.